This is the Mosaic Church Podcast. Mosaic Church is committed to making disciples that discover Christ, connect in Christian community, and serve others and the world. You have your Bibles, turn with me. We'll be, uh, Philippians chapter 2. We were in the middle of a sermon series last year, uh, November and December, on the seven churches in Revelation. I'm going to just take, take a, a pause and uh, insert these next two services, sermons, uh, and then we'll pick up again after that. But Philippians chapter 2, if you have your Bibles, chapter 2, verse 13. Let me get there myself here. Philippians 2.13. Well, let me start with 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. A few years ago, I came across, uh, a long, long time ago, when you guys were being born, I remember this story, and then I read a book that reminded me of the story, so I looked it up. So I want to share this story And it was a Reader's Digest story. Now, for those of you who are young, Reader's Digest is like TMZ on paper. Ah, I wasn't sure. Uh, I was at a conference this week, and I made a reference to a song that I thought was current, and nobody knew it. Now, typically, most of the people in my audience were like 29 and below. So um, I felt a little old at that very moment. But here's a crazy story I'd like for you to listen to. And it's a true story, and it's not a joke or anything at the end, because what you're going to think is like, this can't be, and I know uh, sometimes if you know me real well enough that I, I may want to throw in a joke here and then, but uh, there, but this is not a joke, and I'll try to be brief on the story. I'm not going to read the whole story, but it came out on the Reader Digest magazine, uh, and like I said, it, the story was reminded to me in a book, but I do remember seeing it uh, a few years after high school for me. There was a gentleman named Mr. Fine, and he's taking a walk, and he notices a wallet on the ground, and he picks up the wallet and opens it, and instead of finding cash, he finds an old letter that was, again, this is 1985-ish, so he, he finds the letter that was dated in the 20s, late 20s. It was a Dear John letter, and it said this, Dear Michael, and then it goes on and explains why she's breaking up with him. And at the very end, she says, because she wants to honor her parents' wishes, she has to end the relationship. And at the very end of the letter, it says, I will always love you, Hannah. Well, the founder, the finder of the wallet, Mr. Finn, became a sleuth detective. And so he began to figure out who's the owner of the wallet. And so he found that in the letter, there was an address. So he's thinking he can reverse this thing, and so he finds the address in the phone book, and he calls uh, the house, and when they called and wanted to know if this person, Hannah, lived in the house, uh, they said, no, that family had moved away ages ago, but before they hung up, the owners, the current owners of the house did say this, we do know 
that at one time the mom of the house was staying at a nursing home in the area, and they named the nursing home. And I guess this is way before the days of HIPAA. Uh, they called the nursing home. Mr. Finn calls, fine, Mr. Calls, is it Finn? It's fine. Mr. Fine calls the nursing home, and he finds out that Hannah's mom, who was at the nursing home, had passed away. But the attendant of the nursing home told Mr. Fine that Hannah had an address. So they looked up the address, you know, so maybe they can find Hannah, not the mom. And so they found the address, and they called the address. And again, it was not the owner, but they did say that Hannah, the person they were looking for, was in the nursing home, the same nursing home the mother had been in. So Mr. Fine goes to the nursing home and tells the director of the nursing home to, uh, the story. So he meets him at the door, and he says, I think we have the Hannah that you're looking for, and she's on the third floor. So they went to the third floor together, and uh, Mr. Fine says, and he walks up to her carefully, are you Hannah? And she said, yes. And he says, Hannah, did you write this letter? And he showed her the letter, and to her amazement, she said, yes. And so she began to reminisce of that time in her life. And she says, and she says here, right here, um, that was from Michael Goldstein. He was a very handsome man. And my parents said I was too young to court him because he was older. And then she told Mr. Fine, if you ever find him, please let him know I think of him often. And I never married anyone because no one ever matched up to him. So Mr. Fine thanked her and wiped away his tears and was leaving the nursing home to go find Mr. Michael Goldstein. One of the guards, again, this is a true story. One of the guards is inquisitive and he stops Mr. Fine and says, hey, what is this all about? And he says, well, this is, I found a letter. He tells her the story about this guy named Michael Goldstein. And the guard says, well, we have a Michael Goldstein in this nursing home, but he's on the eighth floor. And so they go up to the eighth floor with the director. So Mr. Fine flies up to the eighth floor with the director and the security guard. And he sees an older gentleman reading a magazine and he carefully approaches him and says, are you Michael Goldstein? And the answer was yes. He says, is this your wallet? And he says, oh yes, that's my wallet. It must have fallen out when I was taking a walk the other day. He says, is this your letter? And Mr. Goldstein said, yes. He goes, well, I read the letter. He goes, you read my letter? He goes, yes. And I think I know where she is, he tells him. And he says, oh, that's incredible. Can you tell me where she is? I would love to talk to her. And he went on to say that that letter ended my life. And I never married because no one ever matched up to her. So Mr. Fine was in shock and excitement. He says, listen, I think you should come with me. And so he takes him down from the eighth floor down to the third floor, and he waits at the door. The director takes over. He gets a hold of Hannah, and he says, Hannah, and she says, can you look back to that door? Do you recognize the man? And of course, she, she did not. But then the man, Michael, calls out, 
Hannah, it's me, Michael. And she immediately recognized his voice, and they began to sit together, and everybody just kind of let him catch up. Three weeks later, they marry. And because Mr. Finn knows this, because they got a, an invitation for the wedding. This is not a picture of them. <laughs> but it's something I imagine it was like. When I think of something similar to this, I think of the word providence. Providence is a very strong word, and this is a very difficult subject matter when I want to talk to you about, about following through, following through, following through our commitment with Jesus, our journey with Jesus, our, our promises that we've made with Jesus, and following through. That's why I like the, uh, the first picture of the golf swing. Uh, that's what I do not do uh, when I play golf, unfortunately. I don't follow through my golf swing. Uh, off topic, they tell you wherever your belly button's pointing, that's where your golf ball's going to go. So mine, that's why it always goes that way. I don't, I don't follow through. Providence. It's broken down into two parts. It comes from the word provide, which has two parts, the Latin pro and vide. Pro means on behalf of. Vide means to see. So you would think it would mean to see forward. It also means forward or to see, to foresee. But providence does not mean that. It means to supply what is needed, to give sustenance or support. And so when we read the, uh, the word providence, the noun providence, it has to come to mean to act of providing for a sustaining and governing the universe, and we would say by God. And so when God brings us salvation and you salvation, a remarkable thing happens. It begins to transform us. Our hungers and our wants and our desires change. Well, at least they should. To me, that is a telltale sign of salvation truly has come to our lives. What we desire changes. When I was 18, a few years before I totally dedicated my life to the Lord, my desire was to just be rich. And I imagine, uh, because it's so far removed now, I imagine uh, sprinkled in there with being famous. I remember in my yearbooks, I would sign, you know, like future uh, Tampa Bay Rowdies player, which is soccer player. I didn't even come close. Um, but that's what I was aiming for. That's what I was reaching for. Money, because I was raised very poor in a poor family, and uh, fame. And so, but when I became a believer in Jesus, not immediately, because I was a tough cookie, but God began to change my hungers and my desires in my life. We just read Philippians chapter 2, verse 13. For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases God, him. So my desires prior to salvation totally were about pleasing myself. 
my encounter with Jesus, Jesus began to change my desires and my hungers to please him. Because I found that that is what really brings, and again, in my young elementary state of understanding, it bring, I thought, well, God knows best. So in our new walk with Jesus, we make choices to, sh- to help shape our destiny and our purpose. And I believe this is a key component, and I don't have a picture of a key, but this is a key to unlock huge potentials that God has placed within our, our power. In the Bible, you know, in Joshua, a very famous address he makes, and we sang it, and we'll sing it at the end of the service again, the second song. He comes over the Jordan, he crossed over the Jordan, and they come in contact with a seduct, seductive gods. And he makes this statement in Joshua chapter 24, 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, in whose land you are living. But Joshua makes this statement. But for me and my household... We will serve the Lord. Joshua made a choice. He wasn't forced to say that. God didn't come in and and put the pressure on him to say that, but it was something that he chose. That he made a decision, no matter what, as for me and my household, We will serve the Lord. The people had a choice. The people that crossed the Jordan were given a key to unlock their future. Joshua chose to serve the Lord and to follow the Lord. And we know because we have the scriptures that once he had done that, the Lord would work in their lives and, and they would be blessed. Now, that doesn't mean that they weren't presented challenges, but God was with them. And our challenge for 2020, our first week back together as a church, and this year, the first time back in 2020, it's a question for all of us we need to answer. Who are we going to choose to serve? Will we serve ourselves, our moods, Our circumstances, are we going to serve our own desires? Are we going to serve Yahweh, God, our Father? Are we going to serve the ancestors of our, our, serve our, uh, the gods of our ancestors? You know, some of us come from really tough lineage. I joked around and I only have immediate family here, but my dad was tough taskmaster. His dad was a tough, tough taskmaster. And his dad was tough. 
I shared this with the Mortons, and I don't mind sharing it now, but it's not a big deal. I love my dad. He's still alive. He's, I'm going to visit him this week. I, I remember one time he literally whipped with a belt my whole family. And one, like, lined us up like, like a gangster style. And, uh, and whipped us all. He was tough. Am I going to worship that? The gods of my ancestry of anger and, 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 and let it bleed out to my, next, my family? Or, or my kids, are you going to let that bleed into whatever my shortcomings bleed down in your family? Are you going to serve God? Or are you going to serve the, the way I worship God? That's a, that's a question you're going to have to answer. The, Joshua t- says to his people, are you going to serve the gods of your ancestors or the current gods? Or are you going to serve the God. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God has the ability to force his will upon us, but he doesn't. What he does is he works with us. And he gives us, I believe, determination to do his will. One of my favorite authors, Ravi Zacharias, says in one of his books, And this is kind of heady. The major step in the choice of following Jesus entails one non-negotiable. When we say yes to Jesus, and he says yes to us, there's one non-negotiable. We have to be committed to him. We have to recognize that our mission now becomes the mission of God. Not Mario's version, not Mario's vision, not your family's vision, but God's vision for your family. So we don't determine if we're being obedient and submissive to God's will based on what we do. I can actually be a pastor of a church and be out of his will and be disobedient. We, I could be doing this for all the wrong reasons. So it's not by what we do, in a sense, like our our jobs, how we determine whether we're being obedient. It's our actions. Our actions tells the world and tells the Lord who we are serving. Our actions of obedience to the king. And the act of the will What are we going to do when we get home? Our will, our acts, our submissiveness, our obedience tells us, tells the Lord who we are serving. There's a scripture in Acts chapter 22. This is Paul in his new conversion. And he says, when I returned to Jerusalem in Acts 22... I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking to me. He said, leave Jerusalem immediately. And he does. And look what it says a few verses before that. The God of our ancestors, God has chosen you to know his will. 
Part of this whole package is that God gives us the capacity to know his will. Now, I will say there are times where it's easier on paper than in real life, and I get that. I have chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. So Paul is in concert, working together, his will, his determination, his desire, and synchronizing it to God's will and his purpose for his life. I find in scriptures that hearing and doing come hand in hand. John 4.34 says, my food, Jesus says, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. That should be our food. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. John 7.17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak of my own. Do you see how if everyone chooses, we're all choosing. I choose. My mother-in-law said to me once, we do what we really want to do. And that's the truth, isn't it? We do what we really want to do. What I see when I read scriptures here is doing God's will, there's, a, there's like some components of revealing, knowing, and doing. Romans 7, 14, you should know this. The struggle of knowing and doing. Paul says, we know the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do, for what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate to do, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is the sin living in me. Basically, he's relinquishing his choice to his sinful will. For I know that God, that good itself does not dwell in me, but that is in my sinful nature. It's a very difficult scripture to read and to understand. For I have desire to do what is good, but I not, cannot carry out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. But that doesn't stop there. The scripture doesn't stop there. We go to Romans chapter 8, verse 9. It says, you... However, are, we are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in us, and if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. 
For if you live, again, these are wills, decisions that we make. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. That's not the key. But if you live by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, and you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and to him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We need to work in synchronization with the Holy Spirit in our lives. We need to submit ourselves not to the sinful desires, but to the Spirit. I'm going to read you a strange scripture in Jeremiah chapter 35, if you have your Bibles. While you're doing that, can I ask you, just raise your hand quickly, how many you brush your teeth every day? I imagine our little cherubs downstairs have troubles with that answer. I imagine, and you don't have to raise your hand, but I imagine you um, take showers every day, you do certain things every day. Uh, in my family in Sarasota, we have a tradition. On near, uh, Christmas Eve, we do, uh, uh, we do these empanadas. It's, it's just done every year. We love it. My family fights over it. So we do things every year without even thinking. I imagine all of us do a lot of things every day without any thinking. We brush our teeth, we shower, we do all those things. We don't even think about it. And Jeremiah chapter 35, it's a great story. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. The, the Lord gave Jeremiah a word during the reign of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. Go to the Rechabite family and invite them to come to one of the side rooms of the house of the Lord and give them wine to drink. So I went to Jezaniah, son of Jeremiah, son of Hebezaniah, and his brother, and all of his sons, the whole family of the Rechabites. I brought them into the house of the Lord, into the room of the sons of Hanan, son of, you know who the guy's there? Idlahaya. It was next to the room of the officials, which was over the Messiah, son of Shalom, the doorkeeper. Look what he does in verse 5. He's obedient. Go to the Rechabite family, invite them to come inside the room and, and give them wine to drink. Then I set bowls full of wine and some cups before the Rechabites. And he said to them, drink some wine. But the Rechabite family replies, we don't drink wine. I'm not going to expose my... Uh, uh, a quick story. My, we, um, we invited one of our neighbors in our family and they brought... Uh, they brought a big bottle of wine, and we're like, appreciate it so much, uh, but we don't, we don't drink. Um, and then they said, well, do you mind if we drink? And we're like, oh, go ahead. So, uh, Robin does use wine for cooking, and it's like, <laughs> that's a family's secret. 
And I hope you know I'm kidding. (laughs) He says, listen, we don't drink wine because our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. Some great-grandpa gave this command. Neither you nor your descendants must ever drink wine, and you must never build houses, sow seed, or plant vineyards. You must never have any of these things, but must always live in tents. Then you will live a long time in the land where you are nomads. This is what they say. We have obeyed everything our forefather, Jehonadab, son of Rechab, commanded us. Neither we nor our wives nor our sons and daughters have ever drunk wine or built a house to live in or had vineyards or fields or crops. So the question we should be asking, why did God ask Jeremiah to provide wine to a family that doesn't drink? You would think that God would know all things. But we're gonna see here in a second that God is going to teach Jeremiah a lesson a lesson that all of us need to learn. And I'm talking to myself. And please don't be so arrogant to think you can't learn this lesson. In verse 12, then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, go and tell the people of Judah and those living in Jerusalem Will you not learn a lesson and obey my words, declares the Lord? The Rechabites ordered his descendants not to drink wine, and this command has been kept. To this day, they do not drink wine because they obey their forefathers' commands. But I have spoken to you again and again, yet you have not obeyed me. And again and again, I sent all my servants, the prophets, to you. And they said, each of you must turn from your wicked ways and reform your actions. Do not follow other gods to serve them. Then you will live in the land I have given you and your ancestors. But you have not paid attention or listened to me. The descendants of Jehonakab, son of Rechab, carried out the command their forefathers gave them, but they have not obeyed me. I'm not going to read anymore, but basically saying, listen, these godless people know how to take a command and live it out. Without God's help. Without God's help, they can fulfill a command. And he's telling these Jeremiah and his people, I have sent prophets. I have sent prophets to warn you to live out my commands, but you're not doing it. I'm going to bless the Rechabites because they follow the command. I'm going off track here, off script. Uh, Peter Crave, one of my favorite theologians, says that what... Islam couldn't do with the sword to take over Europe. They're doing by fulfilling a command to prosper, to have children, and and to have lots of children. 
and they're taking over Europe. Not because they're right, but because they're fulfilling a command of Scripture, and God is blessing that. And God has warned the people of Jeremiah, these godless people know how to fulfill and be determined and follow the commands of their forefathers. But you guys can't. That's what he's saying to me. He's saying these mere humans can follow directions, can follow through, can be so determined to get a task done. That's why we read the first story. There's so many people that got the job done in that first story. Mr. Fine, who was determined to follow through and find who these people were, to Hannah, who was determined to not marry anyone until she found that, you know, she found the one and it's never to marry. And the same with Michael. People who are determined. And we didn't even include Jesus, the Holy Spirit, in the mix. But we have the Holy Spirit living in us. That means we can, we have the blessing of having the Spirit living in us and directing us and working with our wills. It's possible for us to live out the commands of the Lord through the Holy Spirit. Amen? It is possible. It is possible for us to follow through the promises that we have made to the Lord. And so this morning I want to end with, I'm going to ask our band to come on up. Typically this time of year we make promises, don't we? I made promises to lose... uh, to lose weight, and I've already broke that promise, just for last night. Uh, we make promises that we're going to serve the Lord, we're going to be more intent, we're going to be more, you know, we're going to go to church more, we're gonna, we're, we made promises of tithing more, or giving to missions more, or go on a mission trip, and whatever God has called you and, and you felt led to make a promise to, and if it lines up with his will, his word, you can accomplish it with the power of the Holy Spirit. If godless people can accomplish their tasks, then people who are filled with the Spirit can also fill their tasks, which align with the promises of God. So that's our challenge for this morning. As for me and my house, what are you gonna do? I'm gonna ask us to just close our eyes and bow our heads for a moment. Gonna say, I'm going to ask you in a moment we're going to stand and sing this song as a declaration that we are going to align our lives to the will of the Father we are not going to continue on the, the curses of our ancestry We are going to live and walk in obedience and submit ourselves to the King. If people that don't know you can follow through, Lord, how much more we can follow through.
with the Holy Spirit. Whether you're alone or you're with family, in a moment I'm going to ask you, would you be willing to make that commitment to Jesus? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to link up and submit our will to following the will of the Father. Me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That's you. Just go ahead and stand, and then we'll begin to sing our song. Thank you, Jesus. Let's sing this together. We want to thank you for listening. We pray that you were blessed and encouraged. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to this podcast and listen whenever you like. To find out more about Mosaic Church, please visit www.mosaicchurchtlh.com.